Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all this morning. It's always good to be with you. This is, this really is like home for us. I say that every time, but it really is. Uh, and so it's, it's always a joy. Uh, and regretfully, you got the worst half of, uh, of my family. So I apologize to all of you for that. the Lord will give us grace. I want to, first of all, um, congratulate you all on your newest member, little Emery Isabel. I, uh, well, I spoke with Pastor Clint on, on Friday, and we weren't, he wasn't certain what was going to happen when we first talked, and then um, uh, just a couple hours later, it looks like it's going to happen. And uh, I was really excited. And then yesterday, you know how with the technology, sometimes it gets you all turned around. And I, I picked up my phone to check a message. And, and my, my iPhone seems to have a life of its own. It calls numbers. And I'm not trying to call numbers. And I happened to pick it up. And I didn't butt dial it or anything. But I just, the next thing I knew, Pastor Clint's number was ringing, and I thought, oh, no, he's got this new baby. So I turned it off right away. And, uh, of course, he called me right back. I said, get back to your baby. Get back to your baby. So glad to be here. Really a joy. uh, And rejoicing with them. Well, this morning, uh, I want to start a journey that we won't finish until uh, next week, originally, I was going to be here next week, but in light of some of the other other things that have gone on, we find ourselves here this morning. Um, and I want to begin, like I said, a, a little bit of a journey that hopefully will be uh, consistent with the season that you find yourself in. Can we just take a moment and pray? We can do that. Father, we, we just give you thanks for the amazing kindness and goodness that you have shown us. Lord, we can't even begin to fathom how much your love is directed toward us. We have no real idea of just how far we were from you when you found us. But your word is clear that when we were still your enemies, it was Christ who died for us. And so, Lord, we're grateful. We say thank you. Thank you for your tremendous grace. I ask this morning that as you have met us in this place of exalting and lifting your name, that it's from this place that you would speak to us. Lord, we lean in that we might hear from you. I ask in the name of our Lord that you would give us ears to hear hearts that can comprehend so that we can respond well to all that you are saying and doing. Father, I ask personally that you would help me, that I could be faithful to serve you, faithful to speak your word, not only to speak your word, but to convey your heart so that that which you want to have done this morning will be done. And so in all things, both the declaring and the hearing of your word, we commend it to you for your glory and your honor and for the extension of your kingdom. We give you thanks. Amen. Amen. Well, um, I wanted to start by doing a couple things. Uh, just as, as an introduction, and then I want to get into the heart of what what I believe God wants to say, but just some years ago, uh, I had opportunity to travel to Kampala, Uganda. I was there for just under a month. And while I was there, uh, the Lord challenged us with some things. I am grateful that God in his brilliance has chosen not to deposit all of his riches in one place. Um, We really do have to, and get to, not have to, 
but we get to connect with these marvelous parts of the body of Christ where we really discover the riches of the glory of his grace in Christ Jesus. And so I am so thankful for that. Um, But I was with some brethren who have become good friends in Uganda, and I've learned so much from the Africans. Uh, uh, There is just a deep place in my heart toward what God has done with them. But in that, uh, one of my friends, Pastor John Melende, raised a number of issues, and we were challenged to begin to pray in a certain way as it related to God and his purposes. And uh, there were several commitments, one of which was this that ended up over my desk. I have an office at my home. It's called Praying into the Mandate. And there was a shift that took place for me while, while I was there. This is about eight years ago. And uh, praying into the mandate really has to do with God's purposes and how we line up with that, his calling, his destiny, his purposes for us. And I don't want to get into all of that except that there was one aspect of this praying into the mandate that I wanted to share with you this morning because I believe that it is significant for the season that you are in. Um, There was a six-point prayer sheet that we all committed to, but I want to read to you the second prayer point because that really was the one that just grabbed me. Um, And this was the prayer point. Ask him to help you catch the vision of his heart, to understand the burdens of his heart, the seriousness and depth of what he has been doing throughout the centuries and the season of time we are going into in the nations and the church begin to carry the burden that God has. Let me read that for you again. It says, ask him to help you catch the vision of his heart, to understand the burdens of his heart, the seriousness and the depth of what he has been doing throughout the centuries, and the season of time we are going into in the nations and the church begin to carry the burden that God has. That struck me because I realized that this was not about what I saw or how I saw anything. But it really was about, God, what do you see? How do you see things? How do you feel about things? And I need your help in seeing what you see, in knowing what you know, and in feeling what you're feeling concerning these things. And the thing that did grab me in that prayer point was that it talked about the thing that he has been doing throughout the centuries. We're a culture that is microwavable. We talk about nanoseconds, and I mean, we, get, we complain when our computer boots up too slowly. I mean, we're, we're so instantaneous. And yet, here is a prayer concern that says, God, what have you been doing through the centuries? Well, here is a perspective that we all need to have. This is the, the fact is that to God, a year, a, a, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. Isn't that not what the scriptures say? So if that's the case, for us, time is linear. God is not linear in his time. He is in eternity. And that is without time. And so what for us, maybe a thousand years is like that for him. And so five years ago, 500 years ago for God is like two seconds ago. And the thing is, it's important to understand that because it's those two seconds, he doesn't somehow change his direction. We don't change direction that quickly. For him, 500 years ago really is just a matter of a few seconds. So what he was doing 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago, is just as relevant as for us today. We're very contemporary in how we see things. And our marketing strategies make us take old things and discard them because everything is always being updated. That's dangerous because we can lose sight and lose a sense of continuity of what God is doing. Uh, I mentioned in the other service, I've got a friend uh, who is a historian. Uh, I like the arts, the fine arts in particular. And I was noticing that much of medieval artistry, as it relates to religious artistry, always depicts these old Bible characters as though they were somehow, you know, in medieval Europe. And I asked my friend, I said, 
Why do they look like that? And his response was, was that at that time, the assumption was that everybody and everything was always the way that we are at that point in time. And so we see things through the grid of where we are. I I mentioned also that I have a particular concern. I've got three sons and six grandchildren. And my sons survived. They did. They survived the teen years, and we're now going into another generation of little grandbabies that are all loving Jesus. They have an altar in their house, uh, my youngest son down in Orlando on Wednesday nights, and they spend the entire night in worship. They, they, they got one of these big screen TVs, and it's a smart TV, so they just put on the worship music, and the littlest ones are there worshiping. And I thought, Lord, yes, may they love you as we love you. Well, anyway, one of my concerns with the generations, especially the younger generations, is this. We raise kids, if you're a baby boomer, we raise kids, uh, and it came out of, I believe, our own rebellion, who largely discounted much of what had gone on and rejected much of what had gone on before them. So you have generations, X, millennials, Gen Zs, and I don't even know what the newest designations are, but largely they're making things and they're doing things not based upon what has gone on before them, but in many cases have rejected all of that, and there are these new things that are rising up, and they're somewhat troubling because they don't always take into consideration that God was doing something before you got here. And so you make certain assumptions. And so this notion of, Lord, what have you been doing through the last 500 years is really a challenge. I would encourage you to do that because all of a sudden some very old things become all of a sudden very relevant things to the things that are taking place now. That being said, I want to ask you a question. You don't have to answer it out loud, but I want to challenge you with it and, and for your consideration. And here is the question. What is God doing? However you want to process that personally, in terms of the culture, what is it that God is doing? I ask the question because it's very easy for us to look at things the way that we are and not consider that God is doing anything. Um, uh, back in the, in the formation of our country, some of our founding fathers were deists. There is a, a kind of deism that pervades the church. Any, any of you familiar with deism and some of its, its perspectives? It, it's God is the watchmaker. You know, he made the watch, uh, put all the things in place, and then he, he handed it off and he just kind of watches the thing from here. One of the, one of the premises, however, is that, that knowing the will, that the will of God is unknowable. That it's not possible to really clearly know the will of God. But when you consider that God is doing something of which we are very much a part. We all have a purpose and a call in our lives, a destiny, a mandate, whatever you want to call it, a God who created us to do his will. It is, it is uh, therefore important to him that we do his will. So consequently then, he wants us to know his will. I have, I'm always perplexed that many of us, most of us, don't even think, Lord, what are you doing? We just are living day to day with no overarching sense of what it is that he's doing. That's my question to you this morning. What is it that God is doing? Because I want us to, in order to understand a little of what we're doing, we need to understand what he's doing. They are connected. Turn with me, please, over to Matthew chapter 15. And uh, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 16, we'll be reading verses 13 through 19. It says, now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He says to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom 
of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Um, we all are familiar with this passage. But I want to have us look at this in a little different way. Remember, we, we tend to see things the way that, that we are. Understanding the differences, the setting of this particular uh, passage is really important for us. Um, we need to understand concept. Here's what we do. We tend to read the Bible as Westerners. Okay? Often when I've spoken to groups of pastors and leaders, I'll tell them, you know, keep in mind, Jesus is not an American. English is not his first language. And what he was doing was not taking place in the United States in the 21st century. By contrast, what we're looking at here, Jesus was a Hebrew. Aramaic was his language. And this is first century Israel. I don't call it Palestine because God gave it to to Abraham. So it's theirs. But you need to understand that in order to understand fully what he's saying in this passage that's so important because a whole lot is built upon on what he has discussed with the disciples here. So um, in that being said, I, I want to look at the setting of this a little bit, just to set a little of the background and just follow along with me because it will have some relevance as we get further down, down the road. Caesarea Philippi, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, how many of you have been to Israel? I know, Rachel, you, just, you guys just got back from, from Israel. You're there a lot, so, so uh, I've never been there. But I have an opportunity to go next year, so you all pray for me that I can get there. But, I, but it is this matter of the fact that this is a whole different part of the world than one that I am familiar with. So you've got Jesus who is in Caesarea Philippi, and I just want to take a moment just to share a little bit with you about that place, because the setting of that is very significant to everything that he has said here, and it may challenge a few things for you as well. Uh, Caesarea Philippi is in the northeast section of Israel that we refer to as the Golan Heights. And it's near the foot of Mount Hermon. It's also near the ancient city of Dan. Some interesting things went on with Dan uh, in that city because that was where King Jeroboam built those high places and they angered God. Israel, as a result of that, entered into this worship of these false gods. Uh, It was in that place where the worship of Baal was ultimately replaced by the worship of Greek fertility gods. In particular, in particular, Caesarea Philippi became the religious center for the worship of Pan. Do you remember Pan? For those of you who don't, Pan was a god uh, that was part human and part goat. It's a fertility god. And that became the center of worship uh, for Pan. As a matter of fact, the name of Caesarea Philippi was originally uh, Banius or Panius, I believe that's the way it's pronounced. When the Romans conquered the territory, what they, they did was... Uh, uh, Banias became the city that was rebuilt by Philip, Herod's son. And so he gave it this name that was really two names, Caesarea Caesarea Philippi, named after two people. Who do you think those two people were? Caesar was one. Philip was the other. So you've got this city now that's got, got this new identity, but what continued was the focus on these Greek gods. And the locals there, they built these shrines and these temples in a cliff that stood above the city. Now, here is the thing about those shrines and temples. Three gods, Caesar, Pan, Zeus. And Caesar, by the way, the Caesars were considered deities. They were gods. So you've got this idol worship that's going on. Now, my understanding is that... that, um, 
the, the, the cliff where all of these temples and shrines were, there was a very large cave that was there. Now, there, was, there, was a, there were waters that flowed from the cave. They've been somewhat obstructed because of earthquakes now. But, but the issue was that the waters ran from the mouth of the base of this cave, and it was believed that the fertility gods lived in the underworld during the winter and returned to earth each spring. And the pagans saw the water as a symbol of the underworld. So you've got this, this image now of this place where there's this worship, where there are these caves, where it's actually believed by, by those who were in the city that their city literally was at the gates of the underworld. And that was referred to as the gates of Hades. The place of real darkness, extreme darkness. Like I said, the, the thought was that Pan would, would, would uh, go into all of this in the winter, return in the spring. And in order to entice the return of Pan, there were these things that were engaged in every year. Horrible things to entice Pan. Prostitution was one of them. Um, I, I'll kind of run through this quickly because I don't want to, to be uh, indiscreet. But one of those things that was engaged in was a form of bestiality that involved humans and goats. All types of darkness going on in this place. This is the kind of place, uh, kind of the red-like district of the world. It was an extremely unlikely place that you would find any devout Jews going to this place. It was also about 25 miles, if I'm correct, north of Galilee. So it's not a place that you just kind of happen into. If you're going to go there, you have to go there. But that's the setting that you find here. Jesus is there with his disciples at Caesarea Philippi, 25 miles north of where they normally hang out in a place that most devout Jews wouldn't even go. The question you have to ask yourself is, why? Because it's very clear, given the distance and the city, that he was there on purpose. Therein is where I think this issue of what is God doing really starts to come into play for us. What is he about that he would do something like that? So it's significant that, they would be, that he would be there with the disciples. And it's the furthest place, the furthest north that they had gone. And this was just before he goes into Jerusalem. Okay? So he's coming to the end of things. Now, you see this whole thing being laid out. And then he's there at this place and he asks the disciples, why do people say, uh, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And, and we got that kind of thing going on today. Everybody wants to have kind of their read in terms of, you know, who God is and what Jesus is like and so on. I've often told people over the years, I said, look, you know what? If you don't know someone, don't tell me what they're like. Don't try to guess it. Tell me about somebody that you know what they're like, because we can speculate all day long on someone none of us knows. But I can say, you know, I know Philip. This is what he's like. For someone who doesn't know, they can tell me, well, I think he's like this or that. But that was the issue. Who do people say that I am? But then the important question became, who do you say that I am? When I was here earlier, I, I had asked the question. Uh, there were actually a number of questions that I posed to you back earlier in the year that you needed to be able to answer. Who is Jesus? Who am I? Who is my Barnabas? Who is my Timothy? Where is my Jerusalem? Where is my Antioch? Those are all questions that if you're searching and seeking for God's purpose, you need to be able to answer each one of those. So the thing that I, I want to start by saying is that the most important thing that you need to be able to answer, and most of us have, but you need to kind of revisit that. Who is Jesus? 
Who do you say that I am? Peter answers that, and we all know the story. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But Jesus makes this statement. He said, you know, Peter, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but it was your Father who is in heaven. Um, I never took seriously that issue of the importance of revelation in terms of all of that. I want to be careful, but I want to say this, and, and there's somewhat of a risk attached to it, but I'll, I'll say it anyway. I'm an evangelical. I'm a committed evangelical. I believe, you know, that salvation is, is through faith alone and Christ alone, that, that I'm compelled to preach the gospel, all of that. But it's interesting because Jesus' words to Peter was, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but your Father who is in heaven. The fact that we are in a relationship with him didn't come because we figured it out. We're in a relationship because God revealed that to us. No one can come to him, Jesus says, unless the Father draws them in one place unless it is given in another place. And so that becomes the issue. It's what God has done. And so many of our contortions, and I do believe we need to contend for the gospel and all of those things, but ultimately at the end of the day, that's going to come because God reveals Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's an important thing. Now, our problem is that we tend to look at things. Peter got this one right, by the way. He got it right. Jesus commended him. And he said, blessed are you. He was so excited about that. He, he brought another beatitude to the, to the discussion. Blessed are you. But if you look further down in Matthew 16, Jesus starts to talk about some other things. Son of man is going to suffer many things. He's going to be killed. He goes through this list of things that are not so pleasant. And Peter, the same Peter, looked at that. His flesh reacted to that. And what did he do? He, re he rebuked the Lord. And at that time, just after Jesus had said, blessed are you, gave him another name. Didn't he? Why? Get behind me, Satan, because you are not looking at things as they relate to the interests of God. You are looking at the interests of men. When I ask you, what is God doing? Do you see how important that is starting to be? Because there are things that God is looking to do that don't on the surface look pleasant, don't necessarily even look nice. I mean, when Peter, I, I, I have really toyed of late with the idea of just starting to research that because I'd love to teach about that. Why did Peter say this isn't going to happen? But we live in a culture and in a time where all kinds of things that are going on around us, we look at through the lens of our own interests and we say, that's not God. And we reject some things that don't appeal to us because we just don't think God can do that. Um, I've, I've been working on a book on redemption, and it is based on this. A conversation I had some years ago with a guy who was writing a book, Where Was God During Slavery? And I, I ended up doing some research and actually teaching on some of this for number of hours. And I found something that was quite interesting about all of that. I believe it was the 107th Psalm, uh, where it was the Lord who said, I sent a man of, ahead of them, Israel, called him by name, Joseph. And it's interesting, because if you look at the Psalm, the one who took credit for that was God. We all know the story of how he got there. His brothers sold him into that thing. But God said, no, I'm the one who sent him. At the end, after Jacob is, is, is gone and the brothers are trembling because they're afraid that, boy, we're really going to kind of catch it now from him. This is what he said, what Joseph said to his brothers. What you meant to me is evil, 
God meant it as good. You see how you can look at a thing a certain way and it just, oh boy, this is really bad. This was a guy who was 13 years either as a slave or in prison on a bad rape charge. And he looked at it as this is a thing that God has done. And look at the results. So it's possible if all you're holding is the interests of men, you will miss the interests of God. And the problem with that is this. Jesus says to Peter, you are a stumbling block to me. Given the current political climate, given the things that are going on with the economy and all kinds of other issues, we're in a place where things really do look pretty bad and and we are drawing and making conclusions based on how we see the thing rather than saying, God, how do you see this thing? Help me to understand and to see how you see. So you need to understand what is it that, that God is saying. But back to the question of what is he doing? If we go back here to uh, Matthew 13, who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father who's in heaven. Verse 18, Jesus says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, One of the things with certainty that we know that he is doing, he says, I will build my church. 2,000 years into that, is he still building his church? As a matter of fact, 2,000 years into that, there is more of a need now for God to restore his church. Let me ask you this question. And, and again, you don't, I don't, not, I'm not necessarily looking for an answer. But when Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church, do you think that what we are doing today is what he had in mind when he said that then? We did fine for about three centuries. And then beginning at about 312, we really just started to go off the mark with Constantine, and we're, we're well off the mark, I believe, now. And so part of what God is doing, he's restoring his church to what he has called it to be. And, and so this becomes now a matter of his activity is toward a much greater purpose, which is his church. Why his church? What is it about that, Jesus, that you see that we need to understand so that we can give ourselves to that. So there, there is now this issue of, I will build my church. There, there are a number of players that are, that are in this conversation. First of all, there's Jesus. Do you realize the thing that Jesus says is that I will build my church? He didn't say, Peter, you'll build it. He didn't say to, to the disciples or the, or the apostles that you'll build it. He said, I will build my church. The church is the only earthly thing that Jesus has ever claimed ownership over. Do you realize that? He never said concerning anything else that it was his, but this is his church. And he said, I will build my church. This is his activity. It's his initiative. It's the thing that he's doing. The other player who's in this is is Peter. Um, uh, He refers to Peter as Simon Barjona, which naturally is who Peter is. But there's a change that takes place. Who do you say that I am, Peter? You're the Christ, son of the living God. And so Jesus says, I also say now that you are called Peter. He changes his name from Simon Bar-Jonah. I'm sorry, Bar-Jonah is son of, son of John. Simon, the son of John. He changes that name to Peter. Why? Because there's something new that's going on. There's another life that's in him. Is it like God to change names when there's a change of nature? Do you see that? happening in other places in the scriptures. Abram, Saul, there is this change because it reflects that there's something that has now changed. Let me tell you something. When all of us came to Christ, we all had a change of nature. And so consequently, we got a whole new identity. I mentioned earlier, every time I come in here, I see the flags. I love the flags. I love the flags. 
But I'll tell you the thing about the flags. The flags represent all of the different cultures and graces and, 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 and ethnic groups and so on and so forth. But in Christ, all of those give way to a greater identity. No longer Simon Barjona, but a new creature in Christ. And that governs how we relate one to another. If he is building a church, there are places, Revelation 5 being one of those, he redeemed for God with his blood men from every tribe, tongue, people, nation. All of the distinctives. And he has made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. And they would reign on the earth. All of this gives way to the fact that we are now a people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. All of those things. And so here's our problem. We can't get past all of these things. I, I have been involved in racial reconciliation for as long as I can remember. And I have worked and worked and worked with many others who have given themselves to that. In some cases, in some cases, it's been frustrating and very difficult. Do you know why? Because in many cases, folks would rather hold to the old flesh and blood than the new identity in Christ. Can't get past that. And so the, the challenge becomes, then, Lord, if I'm going to do what you're doing, if I'm going to participate in this thing that you are doing in my life, and, and, and I'm a part of your church where you have called all of these with the various and marvelous distinctives to come together and work, then, then something has to move away that allows me to do the thing that you have called me to do, which is to love one another as I have loved you. I got lots of reasons, lots of reasons as a black man to say, you know what? There's just too much stuff. We don't need this. And we'll go another direction. But the issue is that the one that to me, is the Christ, the Son of the living God, has commanded me to love one another. In Corinthians, first, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, if any man is in Christ, he is a, you, you finish it, new creature, the old things pass away, new things have come. That's absolutely right. What happens my culture, my lineage, my language, my race, my nationality all give way to the fact that I'm now a new creature. Now, does he eliminate that? No, he doesn't eliminate that at all. Those are still very much issues in my life that I'm used. I was amazed at how much Paul used the fact that, that uh, he was a Roman citizen. I mean, he used a lot to leverage his situation, you know. I mean, the brother said, you can't do this to me. God has use for that. There's a redemptive purpose for all of that. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it gives way to the fact that there's a larger identity. Why is that? Because he has made them to be a kingdom and priest. Um, there was a brother, I may have mentioned this before, Charles Simpson. Uh, I, was one, I was, came out of a movement, and Charles was one of the leaders, and I had difficulty with Charles Simpson's draw. I just did. I mean, he's from Mobile, Alabama. Man, I heard that, and, and my toenails curled. It's like... And then I found out he was a car-carrying John Bircher. For some of you who are old enough know, remember the, the ultra-conservative right-wing John Birchers. And this is this guy, and it's like, and I got to follow this guy? I couldn't get past all of that. But if I was going to go on in God, I had to realize, God, there's another identity here. And this has to give way to that, a new creature in Christ. We all know Galatians 2.20. 
I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. We all know that. That's, that's Campus Crusade 101. But it's this matter that, that something now is in me. What is the thing that is in me and in you? It's Christ who's in us. And so here's what happens. It's Christ who's in me. So there's a life that's now being expressed. And that life isn't my life. It is his life. The thing that keeps you and I from his life, however, what keeps you and I from his life? Anybody want to own up to that? I'm my worst enemy. I'm the one that keeps me. I mean, we can deal with demonic stuff and societal things all day long. And yeah, those are issues. But the biggest thing that keeps me from expressing the life of Christ is me. And so Jesus in his brilliance, this is what he says. If a man wants to come after me, he must first deny himself. And that's not a maybe, that's a must. So if I don't do the must, then the problem that I'm going to get into is down the road, I'm going to bump into me again. (laughs) Got to deny myself. The next thing he says is you got to take up your cross. What's that mean? I got to die. Diedrich Bonhoeffer says, if a man wants to come after me, he bids him come and die. That's the invitation. If I'm not willing to do that, sooner or later, what am I going to bump into again? Me. Then he says, follow me. When am I giving up? I'm giving up my initiatives. I'm giving up my prerogatives. I'm giving up all of my rights to follow him. If I don't do that, then what happens when he wants to go one way and I want to go another? I will either try to negotiate and compromise with him, or I'll just flat out say I ain't going that way. So he deals with that at the beginning because what he says is, if a man wants to come after me, he must deny himself. That's not new. I mean, we've talked about that before. But here is the issue. If we don't settle that issue of who he is, we can't get to the next place in terms of what he's doing. We will always stumble over our interests rather than God's interest. And the problem is, He's got marvelous things that he's called us to do. The life of Christ that's expressed in us. Do you know the life of Christ already has in it a desire to reach out? The life of Christ already has a desire to please the Father. The life of Christ in me already has a desire to make disciples, has a desire to do all of those things. So I don't have to work those things up. I just got to get out of the way and let that life become expressed. But along with that come all of those other things that come with the life of Christ. It's all the miraculous things as well. Um, I have been a part of large parts of evangelical circles around the country, and there and there are groups that that will reach out, will hand out tracts and those kind of things. And I'm not against all of that. One group in particular will use often the Jesus video. I've seen any of you seen the the Jesus video? It's a great video, but but it wasn't too long ago that I came to a an interesting thought regarding that, you know, and that was this: that if we don't have the love, uh, have the life of Christ expressed in our lives, then the best that we can hope for is to resort to telling stories. I saw the video and I thought, there's so little of that that is expressed in the life of the church that we now have movies about it and that takes the place. I thought, Lord, what if your life was just simply expressed. Would we need that? And there would, I'll tell you, there wouldn't be nearly the discussions that we have. So anyway, all right. So there's this issue of, of a new creature, a new nature that we get. Uh, that's what Peter saw. Um, but then the, the third who in that whole scenario is the church. It's ecclesia. First time that that's ever used in the New Testament is here. And the truth of the matter is, it's the matter of the ecclesia. It's, it's the 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 church, this assembly of those who are called out. Let me give you just a list, and I've given you this before, but let me just give you, remind you of a list of seven things that, that are the aspects of the church. Because if that's what he is building, and that's what he has in mind, let me just, let seven aspects of, of what that is. Number one would be his family. We are his family. That's what he's called us to be. Number two, his body. Number three, his workmanship. By the way, these are all in Ephesians chapter one, two, and chapter six. Number four, we're called to be one new man. That word there is mankind. That's a racial thing. Number five, 
We're the community of the king. We are called to be the society of God's people. This is the church. This is what he's building. Number six, we're his temple. Number seven, the army of God. Seven pictures, seven aspects of who he's called us to be. So when he says, I will build my church, this, this is what we look like. Most of us think of church in terms of this right here. This is a part of what we do when we gather. It says not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together. This is a part of what we do. But I think this is a very small part of what we do. When we're finished today, you all will have another 166 hours before you'll be back here. What happens? Where's the church? What goes on during those 166 hours? The impact of the church during that time. We are in a season of time where what God is doing, he is restoring his church to what he has called it to be. So he says, I will build. That's the thing that he is doing. I will build my church. It's that matter of building, constructing, putting together, fitting, and joining parts or materials. It's that matter of fitting. The the word fit is actually used several times. That word just simply means to have corresponding contours. It's in the context of us connecting and working with one another. It's like iron sharpening iron. How many of you have had iron in your life that either you have sharpened or has sharpened you? How many of those things necessarily took place on a Sunday? I'll tell you what. The more you connect with God's people, the more you get the iron sharpening the iron. And all of a sudden, the closer you get, the more that stuff starts working. If you understand what he's doing, you can give yourself to that. If you don't, you know what you'll do? You'll pull back. And I have done both of those. You'll never do this to me again. I have done that. So it's a matter that, that he's connecting and he's building and he's placing together all of these things. And, and just one or two hours isn't sufficient for that to happen. The, the thing that says that they were continually devoted to in Acts 2.24, the second thing that it says, it says the apostles' teaching, but the very next thing it said was to fellowship, koinonia, things that are in common. What do we have in common? We have Jesus in common. What is his view of what we should have in common? You know what we should have in common? Our lives, we should live those things with one another. It says that they, they sold their property, they brought the proceeds, put them at the apostles' feet, and what happened with that stuff? They started meeting needs. Why? Because they, were, they, they really had burdens for one another. Their lives were, were connected to one another, so they're working those things out. Let me tell you, this is going to cost you more in terms of time and, and, and your willingness to work through some hard relational things than anything else. As God is building, that's the price that you'll pay, which is why, again, you got to deny yourself, take up your cross, follow him, because otherwise you just won't do that. You won't be willing to, to go through that. Now, he's building his church. Question becomes, why? Let me go very, very quickly through a few whys, and then, then I'm done. Why is he building his church? What's his purpose for his church? Well, one of the things you see right away, he says, um, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Let me go back to the fact that this is a really dark place that's 25 miles away. <laughs> Hadn't considered that before. When you think of the, the, the wise, Jesus talks about... Um, on this rock, I will build my church. What's the rock? Some folks, there, there are a number of uh, uh, positions taken concerning that. One is that it's Jesus, that Jesus is the rock. But if Jesus is the rock, why even mention Peter? Then there's the view, and this is the one that for years I have subscribed to, that the rock really is that confession that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. I believe that. I have been taught that. I believe that. But recently, there have been a couple things that, that I've been curious about. 
One is that the rock is Peter. Now, any of you who've been around some of these movements, Derek Prince used to teach all the time about some of this stuff, and Derek always taught that Peter wasn't the rock. And part of our, uh, part of our objection to the rock is what the Roman Catholic Church, ex-Catholics that are here, what the Roman Catholic Church did. I mean, Bishop of, Bishop of Rome, the whole line of succession of leadership. It's been a distortion of the issue of, of Peter and his line of succession. But I want to present something to you, and I'm t- not trying to tell you what to think about this, but just as a possible why, because he refers to this as a right. What do you know about Peter? Day of Pentecost. Who's the one who preaches? Peter. Just a few, ver- a few chapters down, do you remember Cornelius? Who's the one that goes to Cornelius' house? Peter. Who was the group that gets saved on the day of Pentecost? Hebrews. Who were the folks that got saved at Cornelius' house? Do you realize that God used Peter to open up both the Jews and the Gentiles in a very real way? Jesus says, Peter, I'm going to build my church on you. The very first one. Now, he doesn't, he doesn't uh, uh, subscribe to Peter any infallibility or anything else. He just simply says, I'll build my church. I think that's a viable way of looking at this thing. Now, it's not the only way, but I think there's something to be said about that. But the one that I really want to look at is this issue of going back to to, um, uh, Caesarea Philippi. There at that cliff, there is a massive rock formation. There are two rocks that are significant in Israel. One is the rock on which the Temple Mount is built. The other one is this massive rock that's at Caesarea Philippi. Here's how big this thing is. A hundred feet straight up. 500 feet across. And remember what it is. This is the gateway into all of the darkness, into Hades. So he says, on this rock, I will build my church. That created a different reality for me. I just talked to a friend who's a pastor in Baltimore. The murder rate in Baltimore this year is 1,000. I don't know if any of you have been to Baltimore. I've never seen a place like that. I thought Cleveland's inner city was bad. I've never seen anything like Baltimore's. But guess what? Right there is just like right at the entrance into, those, into that underworld. He says, it's here that I will build my church right in the midst of all of this stuff. The 110th Psalm says this. It says, uh, uh, rule, the the Lord will stretch forth his, his scepter from Zion, and he says, rule in the midst of your enemies. It's the matter that where the darkness is, where the oppression is, where all of the wickedness is, Jesus says, that's the rock that I'm building my church on right there. That created an entirely different picture for me or an expectation of what you're building. Lord, you're building something that has such integrity, has such a life and power and potency to it that you'll put it right in the middle of the enemy's camp and it'll thrive there. As a matter of fact, what it says is this, that the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Do you know what the gates are? Gates in Israel are not like like gates, like your fence. It's actually a room. Gates in every city were never offensive in terms of their nature. They were always defensive in terms of nature. It was a matter of authority. The elders would, would meet at the gate. But the gates were the places uh, the, the soldiers could, could arm themselves. They'd get on top, and, and they could then repel invading forces. The gates were for defense, not for offense. So when Jesus says that the gates of hell will not, or the gates of Hades will not prevail against us, it's not like they're coming against us. It's like we're going against that. That becomes the issue. So when he says, I'll build my rock on this, or my church on this rock, all of a sudden I started thinking about cities and places of darkness. I started thinking about universities and places where, there's, where they're all manner of darkness in terms of 
teaching and all kinds of other things. All of the places that we retreat from into the safety of our gatherings, Jesus says, no, 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 no. That's where I want to build my church. That's where I want to build my church. So that's why he's going to fill all of the places with his glory. Second reason why he's called us to be his agent. I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. So here's the transaction. I'm giving you the keys. I'm giving you authority. Whatever you bind, whatever you loose. You know what that sounds like to me? You just made me an agent for the king. And I'm to represent you. I, I was talking to a group up in Minneapolis not long ago. And one of the things we were talking about is this issue of in the name of Jesus in the name of Jesus, whatever you ask in my name. And I, and I was kind of praying through that, and I was looking more in the Word, and I realized we use the name of Jesus as a punctuation mark. What that really means when I say in the name of Jesus is that I am here representing his interest, his priorities, his concern, and from that place, this is when I go to the Father. Father, here are Jesus' interests, here are his concerns, here are his priorities, and so I'm just asking you, representing him concerning this thing. The fact that I, that I wave the wand of in the name of Jesus will not necessarily affect that one way or the other, because the reality is, it's the position and the place that I occupy. That's what he's doing with this church. When you consider that every one of you, every one of us, represent have the potential to represent his priorities, his heart, his intent, his life, expressing that. And we start to carry that into the places where you will be tomorrow morning. And we start asking God about those places, representing those realities. I think we will begin to see some real things change and take place. Think of Joseph, think of Daniel, Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They just, they just simply carried with them those things that God had imparted to them. So he's called us to be agents. He's called us, uh, the reason why he's doing this is that he wants to put the fullness of Christ on display. Ephesians 1 says that calls the church, uh, the fullness, uh, that, that he's the head of the church, which is the fullness of him who fills all in all. You and I are called to be the fullness of Christ. Ephesians 3 talks about being filled up to all of the fullness of God. And Ephesians 6, it talks about the measure of stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ. Now, let me say this to you. You can't do that as an individual, number one. You can't do that as a congregation, number two. It takes a much greater expression of the body of Christ to represent his fullness. That's a case that needs to be made for any of the citywide things that are going on. You need to put priority on those things. You represent an aspect of that, a particular distinctive, but it's your distinctive and all the others that are committed to that, that really starts to give expression to fullness. God is doing something not only with New Song Church, God is doing something in, in uh, Northeast Ohio. And as such, you need to understand that we are all a part of that thing. Why? Because what he wants is us to put him on display. He wants his fullness to be seen and known. Fourth reason why is that he wants the rulers and the authorities to see the manifold wisdom of God. He's putting us on display. What is he doing? He's building, he's restoring his church. What is he doing, New Song? You're in a process of building and restoring. New set of issues concerning your relationships with one another, concerning the, your calendaring and your schedules with one another, concerning your priorities with one another, concerning all of these issues that have to do with your life. There is a corporate and a collective life that is emerging, but it will only happen not because you attend necessarily the same worship services, but because you make a sincere and an earnest commitment to one another to walk out and to live out your faith with one another, with all of those 59 one another's. That doesn't take a, a routine uh, or rhythm of a weekly thing, that's going to cost you more in terms of your calendar. Let me end by saying this. In Genesis 1, 
there's an interesting, in the fourth, uh, on the fourth day, remember, first day was the very first thing that God says, let there be light. But it's on the fourth day, it's on the fourth day that he does an interesting thing, because there is not, there's not one light, there are two lights. There's a greater light, there's a lesser light. It's the greater light, you know what it says? That it governs the day. But it says that it's the lesser light that governs the night. He's got a provision for both day and night. It's this issue of darkness. It's that matter of the lesser light that's the fascinating one. You walk outside tonight, what are you going to see? You see the moon and the stars. Does the moon have any light of its own? No, it's a rock. It's a rock, but what does it do? It reflects the light of the sun, and we get light at night. New song, church, that's you. Reflecting his light, his concerns, his priorities. God, what are you doing? Help me to connect with your burdens and your, help me to carry those things because that's what I want to reflect. Help me to reflect your life, your love, your sacrifice, all of those things. Why? Because in the darkness that we are in, that becomes light that's there. Light does two things. It illumines and it exposes. But then there's another light, another category of lights at night, and those are stars. Stars are not like the moon. Stars actually have their own light, do they not? But the thing about stars is this. None of the stars, except for our sun, are close to us. The closest star, I think, is like 50 light years away at 186,000 miles a second. That's how far it takes light to travel from that star to there, 50 years. When you see the light of that star tonight, understand that the light you're seeing started 50 years ago. And it's just hitting your eye tonight. God's word given, the scriptures given centuries, millennia ago in some cases, off in the distance, but still given light now with us. We've got universities and a culture that is filled with all kinds of darkness, false philosophies, worldviews, and everything else. You know the solution to that? It's the word of God. Those things are antithetical to to God's ways. What does that mean? It means that I got to get out of the place of my biblical illiteracy and I need to really begin to saturate in God's word. John Melinda used to tell us, stop snacking on the word of God. The more you know, the more you express, the more you become a prophetic voice for that in a dark place, it begins to expose things. Right now, the culture has said, Christians, you have no place here. You have no voice here. As God restores his church and brings it to a place of oneness in him, and I'm not so naive as to think that we will get that completely and entirely right, because I know that's a process, but I know that as our hearts are tender toward him and toward his purpose, that I can lay my stuff aside and say, God, I'll pick up yours. He'll be faithful to change my heart and your heart. Where we will become an irresistible force in a very dark nation, the largest group, the largest group in this country, in the United States, aren't even the, the gender issues, men and women, I believe, are the fact that there are so many professed Christians in this country because they incorporate both groups. If God were to bring a kind of oneness as we realize that we are a part of that church that Jesus talked about and we begin to represent his interests and not our own, on virtually every area in all of the mountains, we would impact those things significantly. But that is the case. That is the challenge for us. It's to say, God, help me to see what you see. 
Help me to be aware of those things that you're doing so I can give myself to that and to understand where you're taking us so that I can start to carry your burdens. And Lord, help me to connect one with another with those to whom I am connected so that they can bring to me what's necessary. I can take to them what's necessary in spite of and irregardless of our distinctives, but that as such, we're fitted and held by that which every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual individual uh, uh, member part, we then become a kingdom and priest to our God. And what does it say about them? They will reign on the earth. Those are Carlton's words. Those are his words. That's the challenge for us. That really is the challenge for us. In a season of building new song, give yourself to the process. Give yourself to the process. Allow God to adjust you however he wants to, but fully embrace that which he puts before you. What I'd like to do, I want to pray for you, but I'd like to have you all pray one for another, just for the sake of being able to connect with one another, if I could do that. Lord, I ask that that you would burden all of us. Help us to connect with your heart in such a way that we carry the concerns and the burdens that you have. And may that be an ongoing, may that become a priority, a daily priority for us to do that. And Lord, I ask that as such, that we might begin to value that which you have done with those on our right and our left, that Lord, it would be insufficient for us just simply to connect once a week in a worship service, but that we might begin to intentionally seek out, draw out, connect with one another so that our lives really do reflect your life, that the flow of grace goes from one to the other as we are committed and held together through these relationships. Make them clear and specific, Father, that we might give ourselves to those. Oh God, we give you thanks. And Lord, we look forward to you filling the earth with your glory through your church as you restore her to all that you have called her to be in every aspect. Your holiness, your character, your power, both divine and natural in every way, Lord. Make us to be what you've called us to be for your glory and the extension of your kingdom. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Just take a moment.